0: Take our Bibles today and go to Matthew chapter number 5, Matthew 5 this morning, and we'll be in verses 31 through 48. We'll have covered this whole chapter, and this is the first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been speaking about kingdom living, as I mentioned already, that's our theme, we're part of God's kingdom, not our kingdom, not this world's kingdom, but the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So. A little bit of background. I'm going to talk to you today about this idea of pre-decisions, making decisions ahead of time. And really, the, it's going to be really practical and very um, kind of uh, culturally confrontational in some ways. And the reason for that is because there's a particular set of values that are historically unique to the Christian faith, and Jesus speaks about those, and he introduces them to us in Matthew 5. Now, a little bit of background. If you were to just look back in chapter 5 at verse 17, where we were last week, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus says, I did not come to do away with the law. Now, We had a great discussion about this on Wednesday night. I I want to encourage you to come out on Wednesday nights. We're going deeper in these passages and we're having some discussion about them. But we had a really good discussion on verse 17 on Wednesday because as they looked at Jesus, they may have thought that he was destroying some of their law. But in fact, what he was doing was he was doing away with the Pharisees' laws and traditions. But when it came to the law of God, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. That he would be the only one to perfectly and completely fulfill the law. So then he gives them the idea of kingdom righteousness. He says, well, you think that if you clean up the outside like a Pharisee, right? The Pharisees cleaned up the outside. If you think that you can clean up the outside of your life like a Pharisee, that you're going to be okay, Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, it is not enough to be obedient on the outside, but you have to have perfect righteousness, where? On the inside. And so he starts to say things like, he starts to say things like, well, for instance, you heard that thou shalt not kill. And you think, well, I didn't kill anybody, so that's good enough. And Jesus says, well, actually, in my kingdom, it's not just about the outward action of murder. It's about the inward action of hatred. And you can't have a, you can't, the, the inward passion of hatred. You can't have a law that governs the passions of men and women. You can only, laws can only deal with the outside. They can't deal with the internal. So Jesus is teaching them that the standard of righteousness in his kingdom is actually higher, it's harder. So, some people read the Sermon on the Mount and they hear Jesus saying these things, you know, blessed are the merciful, or later on, uh, don't do your giving in front of people, do it in secret, and this is how you should pray. And some people look at the Sermon on the Mount as like, it's this list. Okay, well, I'm doing that thing Jesus says, I'm doing that thing Jesus says, I'm doing that thing Jesus so then surely I'll be part of the kingdom. Well, if you do that, you're misreading the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to, yes, present the Christian virtues that we aspire to. But it's also supposed to be a heavy weight that we see, well, who could be so perfect on the inside? And it's setting us up to understand that only Jesus can transform us on the inside. It's just the Ten Commandments are hard enough to measure up to. Never mind how Jesus interprets those commandments. So we should see that we need a righteousness that comes from someone else. It comes from Jesus. It comes from Him. Now, but that does not mean that we don't try to live to the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. You understand what I mean by that? It doesn't mean that we look at it and say, Well, who could keep the law? Who could keep the commandments? I can't, so I'm just not going to worry about it. It's all about how I feel in my heart. Well, that's not the point either. The point is that if we have r- realized our weakness, if we understand the gospel, that we are lost, that we have no righteousness of our own, that it only comes from Jesus, and we receive his righteousness, we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. However, we should now look at the teachings of Christ and we should say, okay, from a new heart, from a new relationship with God, it does matter how I live. It, it, there are things that are expected of me as a Christian. And so on the one hand, this Sermon on the Mount gives us the understanding that we could never be good enough. And so we need his grace. But on the other hand, it gives us an ethic to aspire to. So I'd ask this question, as we think about Christian ethics, what are the moral principles that I base my decisions on? We live in a time where ethics are changing. And Christian ethics versus the ethics of the world are changing. Now, in the New Testament, that was pretty common. In fact, I was listening to a discussion this week or or an article maybe it was, I I don't remember, but the point was made that in the days of the Romans, in the days of the Romans, that people would treat other people that were socially inferior to them however they wanted. They would be, I don't want to get graphic about it, but they would be sexually promiscuous, with their slaves or with other people. There were tolerations. Well, the Christian ethic comes along and says, well, actually, no, this is how it should be. It should be one man and one woman for life. All those people who had been taken advantage of and legally assaulted, so to speak, well, that wouldn't have been looked at as an oppressive ethic. They would have just been elevated and given worth, and dignity, and standing. And our whole culture has been shaped by these Christian virtues, these Christian values, that now are being turned around. They're being, they're, they're, those values that have given the most liberty and the most wonderful life to people in our culture for a thousand years are now being viewed as oppressive. What I want you to see, though, is that as Christians... As we go into the culture, we do not have to, there are not a lot of decisions that we have to make. Now, if you're, if, if, what I just said, there are not a lot of decisions we have to make. You might be like, "Well, well, what do you mean? Of course there's a lot of decisions I have to make. I'm bombarded with decisions. There's a lot of decisions we have to follow. But as Christians, we understand that Jesus has already made the decisions for us. He's already, already given us the answers that we need. So I want to encourage you to think of it this way. As you go into the world, as you face situations, and as you're confronted with, oh, will I make this decision? Will I make that decision? Jesus has already made the decisions for us. It is up to you and I to pre-decide in advance. When I was a kid, we, they came out with the bracelets, and the bracelets, this is when I was a teenager or maybe even a little bit younger, this was the big thing in Christianity, and it was the bracelet WWJD. How many, of you, how many of you remember that or you at least know what I'm talking about? It was a big deal for a while. And that WWJD stood for, what would Jesus do? And it was encouraging young people as you go into life to just ask yourself that question in the scenario What would Jesus do? Now, it became kind of trite and trivialized and whatnot. However, it's a good principle to live by, except I want you to back it up in advance. And before you enter that situation, before you enter that difficulty or that choice, build your life on the scriptures so that you know in advance what decision you will make. It's a whole lot easier to pre-decide. I don't know if anybody's been on a, um, a, uh, a weight loss journey in their life. Don't raise your hand, okay? But if you've ever done that and you've ever listened to fitness or it, maybe not just weight loss, but fitness plans, they will tell you a big part, a big part of success is what is called, it's two words, the, maybe some of you will know it, it's meal what? All right, some of you said it. it's meal what? Prep. It's meal prep. Now, what that is, is a horrible exercise in which people take little containers or bags or they count their macros. And what they do is the week before they decide what they are going to eat for the week or the day. They make the decision in advance of what they're going to. And do you know, people who do that have tremendous success in meeting their fitness or weight loss goals. Why? Because they do not wait for the moment. They do not wait for the the cheeseburger to be placed in front of them. They just have pre-decided in their week or in their journey what is going to happen tomorrow. As Christians, in our spiritual life, we need a little life prep. We don't need to just go out into our, for for the kids, go out into our school week. Be like, well, we'll see what life throws at me this week. We'll see what pressure the other kids will put on me this week. Or we don't need to go to our workplaces and our jobs and be like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to face this week. For the most part, we know the common temptations. We know the common, now there's always things that come out of nowhere. But we know what we're going to face. And Jesus has given us the tools. He's given us the word of God for us to pre-decide, for us to know in advance. Now, all of these things are, Jesus could have given us a list of 300 things here. But what he does in this passage is he gives us a few specific examples of how as Christians, we have an ethical foundation from which to pre-decide how our lives are going to go. So, for instance, let's read what it says. If you'd follow with me, in verse number 31 and 32, Jesus says this, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away, that, that means divorce, Whosoever shall divorce his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, That whosoever shall put away his wife, Saving for the cause, unless it's for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So I'll give you the first thing Jesus says that is very countercultural to the world in which we live today. The first ethical principle, it's on the back of your handout today, is this, Jesus teaches that marriage is a permanent decision. It's a permanent decision. You'd say, Ethan, how do I know if I married the right person? Because you married that person. That's the principle that God says. Now, that is why it is so important before you make that decision. Before you enter into a marriage relationship, you need to be wise and discerning. But once you are married... You have made a vow, and that vow was made to your spouse, and that vow was made to whom else? To God. The vow was made to God. Now, there's obviously an exception in this passage. If someone were to violate the sanctity of that marriage, there's an exception that is made here. But the whole idea of no-fault divorce is not a Christian decision. It's not a Christian idea that two people just find themselves no longer compatible with each other. That's not what Christians do. Well, sadly, in our culture today, many Christians do do that. But it's not what Jesus said. It's not what Jesus taught us. He taught us that marriage is permanent. So I'd like each person in here to, in your heart to predecide in your life that marriage is permanent, that there is a uh, a principle by which Christians should love, uh, should live. Now, if you look at the passage, this was a problem in the, in their day and age, so this is even countercultural in their time. It hath been said, verse thirty one that whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. There was another passage in Matthew where they wanted more clarification on this. And they come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful for us to get divorced for any reason? Jesus deals with it the very same way. Now, what was happening in the cultural day is in this social context, the men had much more power in the relationship than the women. So what would happen is cruel men, cruel men would determine that they, were, they just wanted to be with somebody else. And so they looked in the law of Moses, and the law of Moses, there was a legal protection of divorce. And that legal protection of divorce was so that if, if a woman were divorced by her husband, she had legal protection. That's a good thing. But that they took that to mean that, oh, well, as long as I do it legal and proper, I can divorce my wife for any reason. Well, Jesus says, no, you've completely missed the point of this here. That's not the point. And in fact, if you do that, Jesus says, and this would go for man or woman, if you were to just become tired of your spouse and seek to replace your spouse through divorce you've committed adultery. Now that's strong, right? That's strong. I don't need to add any strength to it. It's just what Jesus said. If there's no grounds, if there's no biblical grounds for divorce, as in sexual unfaithfulness, there are no grounds, then to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. So, you say, well, what about those In the church, who that's happened to. Now they've remarried. Well, you cannot go back in time and undo what has been done, right? I think we understand that. But you can repent of past sin and you can start fresh and new and say that the marriage that I am in, at this point, I've repented of my past action. The marriage that I am in now, I believe that this is sacred before God, I vowed before Him, and marriage is permanent permanent. That is a one example Jesus gives us of something as Christians that despite what the culture does, we can pre-decide that our marriages are permanent. And just that alone, can you imagine the impact? I think this is an area where the Christian church has lost a lot of credibility. The church has lost a lot of credibility. Because on the one hand, Christians are championing traditional marriage and standing against things like gay marriage, which is not God's plan either. It's not what the passage is dealing with, but Christians are standing against that, and they're saying, no, marriage is sacred. But then in action, Christians are actually exhibiting, well, marriage is sacred with how many husbands and how many wives? Right? It's a bit of hypocrisy in the church. But what a distinction the, the early church was when people would look at them and say, "Wow, in a Roman culture where and you think you think that we are a sexually unrestrained culture, the Roman Empire was very much so. But Christians were known for their chastity, and Christians were known for their faithfulness in their marriages. And we think, well well you know, if, if we don't recapture the White House or if we don't get more political control, well, maybe that's not the answer. Maybe the answer is just for Christians to live out Christian values for the world to see. Maybe that's what we need. Now, I, I, I try to speak compassionately about this because there are people that are victims of divorce, that did not seek it out, did not want it. And, and Jesus' message to you would be one of compassion and hope, and value, and worth. But for those that are in marriages right now, it's permanent. The vow is between was to your spouse and before God. So as you see this, this is why I'm presenting to you, like, there's several things, and we could, there could be more, but these is, this is what Jesus introduces us to in this pe- passage. He says, your marriages need to be per- permanent. And then he teaches them a second ethical principle, that the truth matters in life. The truth matters. Look at what he says in verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither, and, and this means oaths like, you know, um, as God is my witness, or, you know, cross my heart and hope to die, or, you know, all, all these, these things that are now kind of just trite sayings, but they actually meant something at one point in our history. People would use them to substantiate what they're saying. They're referred to as vain oaths. But Jesus says, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. If I said yes, it means yes. If I said no, it means no. You, that your word stands for something. That to a Christian, truth matters. It matters significantly. The truth. Now, in this time, it's, it's interesting what happens, how people make. Have you found that we're very good at rationalizing our white lies? We're good at rationalizing them? Well, in this day, they had a lot of rationalizations, because it's a little confusing to be like, swear not by the heaven or by this. So this is what they would do. They would come up with all these like levels of honesty, right? Well, you know how you can really trust me? Well, I'm swearing. I swear on... on I swear on all that is righteous and on my head. You know, like, like there are sayings like this that we still, uh, you know, on my life, I tell you this. And they had actually developed systems and so they would, they would, have, they would swear by, uh, you know, this was a level of truth and that was a level of truth and, and then they would invoke God. What is his point here? If you look at what he's saying is this, he says, it doesn't matter what you're swearing by because God is, he's everywhere, Everything you say, God is your witness, as God is my witness. Well, God is your witness everywhere you go and every word that you say. Truth. Truth. Listen, this some of you might, some people might not like this. So we're going into full-blown election season. Now, very often when you are deciding, I'm not telling you who to vote for. That's That is your decision. But very often, we are left with a choice of bad and less bad. Have you ever felt that way when you're voting? Like, my choice is bad and less bad. It's one thing to make a decision to vote for someone because you think that is, at this moment, what is best for the country. It's another thing entirely to celebrate to celebrate people who champion values that are not Christian values like it's it's wrong to celebrate the behaviors of your favorite politician that are unchristian behaviors that's wrong now i understand that doesn't mean like i've heard how could you vote for that person they stand for this well consider the alternative Those are decisions that we have to make. So I'm I'm not making a, a political judgment here on who you should or shouldn't vote for. But what I'm saying is be careful, Christians, how much you want to associate yourself with a political brand. That's my point. Okay? Do not, because what happens is when the church attaches itself to a political party, the church begins to rationalize dishonesty. Unfaithfulness, and very unchristian conduct. Now, I have voted for people who exhibit those things when I considered the alternative, but I'm not going to give them my unquestioned support and promote them as the savior of the country when they do not exhibit Christian ethics. That's how the Christian engages in the public sphere. We don't sell our soul for or our values for political gain, because these things matter. The teachings of Jesus here. Now, we, you, you might say, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's pretty obvious, right? But some of you would say, yeah, but, but, <laughs> but the other side is for the, uh, for the uh, you know, for terrible, terrible things. Absolutely. We are wholeheartedly against that. That is so wrong. I am for the ending of abortion. I am for the promotion of family values. I am, the, the whole transgender movement is not a biblical movement. Okay? So we are, in a, we are in a culture that is falling apart morally. Don't assume that there's a political party who's going to save the day, because that has not been displayed. It is up to local churches, individual Christians, and families to say we are Christians, and that still means something. There was some family members that I was talking with, and we were discussing the prevalence of young Christian people not being sexually pure and living together outside of marriage. And somebody said, well, it's just how it is these days. And you know what? I got really hot about that. That's not how it is these days. You know, that's not right. And they weren't making an excuse for it, but the more I thought about it, they were right. That is how it's become these days is that Christians do not live Christian values. And we will lose our distinction in the culture. You see, if our lives mean nothing to the world, then the gospel means nothing to the world. If our lives mean nothing, the gospel means nothing. So we have to value and champion a Christian worldview, a Christian way of interacting in the world. Marriage is permanent. The truth still matters. And then probably a lot of you, you know, that's not a real struggle. Some of that's not a real struggle for us. But this third one really goes against our American way of life. And that is this. We sur- Christians are people who surrender their rights. We surrender our rights. Look what Jesus said. This is a Christian virtue. Verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, there's nothing wrong with that legal statement there. This is how a legal system should work, right? And Jesus even said he came to fulfill the law. There's nothing, that statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth has been vilified. But from a legal standpoint, this this was the law. If you if you if if you rob somebody, you're going to pay them back with an additional penalty, right? If you damage someone's property, you will be held responsible for it. This is a good law for a legal system, but this is an unChristian way to deal with personal interactions. Where if somebody, I feel that somebody has wronged me, so I'm going to go back and I'm be like, well, the law is an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, so I'm taken back from you, what I think you owe me. In personal interactions, this is not how Christians are to behave. We absorb offenses, because who absorbed the ultimate offense on our behalf? Jesus. We realize that we are forgiven, and because we are forgiven, we extend forgiveness. But, Sometimes Christian people will get into arguments over a $5 mistake on a bill. Right? This is like in real life where we live. We'll get into an argument over some, some deal that we made with somebody that we don't think worked out to our favor. These are the kinds of situations Jesus is talking about. You've heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 39. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whoever will smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, again, this is not dealing with legitimate issues of self-defense. What, it would be wrong if someone came in here and was threatening my children and I stood by, I would be failing them as a father. That's a separate issue. But if someone came up to me and said, I really can't stand you smack, or people don't smack nowadays, it's more like they shove. That, 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 that can happen. Somebody gets in your face and, and boom, like that. That would be kind of the equivalent man, you put your hands on somebody, whew, you you better be ready to throw down, right? You put your hands on somebody? But Jesus says, Jesus says, if someone would do that to you, offer them the other. Now, probably most of you don't get into physical altercations with people. I hope not. I hope not. But do we get into verbal altercations like this with people? If any man, verse 40, if any man will sue thee at the law to take away your coat, let him have thy cloak also. Now, notice the examples Jesus is giving. He's not saying if they're suing you, taking away your house and your property and everything that you. You know what I mean? These are, this, he's, his point is these, these things that people would. People would argue, like, well, he owes me money, so you know what? Well, the judge is like, well, he doesn't have any money to pay. Well, I'll take his coat. Let him have it. Let him have it. And whoever will compel you to go a mile. Now, my understanding, and again, I always say I'm not an expert in ancient customs, but my understanding was that by law, a Roman soldier was allowed to make somebody carry their stuff for a mile. You can fact check me on that later, but that's my understanding of it. That a Roman soldier could, could, could allow you to, to, could force you to walk a mile because you were in, you know, a Jew in Palestine. You'd, you'd have to walk the mile. Jesus says, why don't you offer him the second mile? Go. Oh, we have a saying from this in our culture today, don't we? Why don't you go the extra mile? It's amazing how many things are from the Bible, right? Like, this has nothing to do with the message, but Aaron read that verse, I'm like, lick the dust. Like, I didn't even realize that one came from the Bible. That was in the scripture this morning. All these sayings. But anyway, back to the message. So, whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. Go the extra mile with that person. I've got to be honest with you. Like, I think there's a lot of people that'll be like, yeah, marriage is permanent, and my word is my bond they might struggle with this one. Somebody comes up and insults you, take advantage of you, shove you. Can you graciously back down and say, it's okay, Jesus forgave me, I will forgive you. See, the world is supposed to see these things and be like, literally like, what is with these people? Like all these Christians I meet, all these Christians... They're just so different than everybody else. But, and maybe this is why the Lord is allowing our country to, the Christianity to wane in our country. I don't know this. I don't wish this upon us. But maybe it's that we need to go into being a little bit more outsiders so that we see what's really important. Because sometimes I think while in the early church, Christians, it, it was... People were just amazed. They would watch Christians go to the lions, singing. They, and Christianity exploded when Christians just lived out what Jesus called us to be. Because people were amazed. Not by how loud and angry and noisy they were, but by how different they were sexually, how different they were relationally, And how they loved each other. Because we are a people called to surrender our rights. Give to him that asketh thee. And from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and what? We've totally lost this in our political climate, climate, too. Say, but you don't understand how evil that opposing political force is. Well, Jesus is talking about evil people here. People who hate you, despitefully use you, And what? Persecute you. Who's the senator that just passed away this week? Dianne Feinstein? Feinstein? Okay. She probably advanced some of the most ungodly agenda of any senators in recent history. Not a friend of biblical Christian values. But she died. And some people on the other side... Said kind words about her in her passing. I, I would think that would be doing good, praying for. But this is what Christians do, even those who oppose our values. It doesn't mean we excuse things. It's just this is what Christians do. Too, but we are in such an angry culture, aren't we? Angry culture. Everybody's mad at somebody. Please do not mistake this for softness on issues. Like, I have no problem speaking the biblical truth on any issue. But how we treat people is a Christian ethical issue. One one author that I have read a lot said this, true tolerance is not that you agree with everyone, but true tolerance and Christian tolerance is how you treat those with whom you disagree. Not that I believe that all views are valid. Of course they're not. But I believe that all people who hold those views are created in the image of God. And I'm called to treat them as Christ did. So this is kind of perspective-changing teaching from Jesus. Verse 45 that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Did you know that God shows kindness to the people that you think are the most evil? God shows them kindness. And when you show them kindness, you are demonstrating that you are a child of God. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Don't even the publicans do the same? Now, this is a little bit of irony. Jesus is almost a bit sarcastic here because who did the Pharisees hate? Him, but, but in this verse, tax collectors, publicans, they hated them. So it's like this little, like, whole twist of conversation. He's like, you've got to love your enemies. Well, the publicans would have been in their mind. I hate those people. I hate those guys taking our taxes, joining in forces with the Romans. We hate those guys. Jesus is like, well, you got to love your enemies and the people who use you and take your money from you. Give them a little more. you got to love them. And they're like, oh, I can't do that. Well, if you only love the people that love you, aren't you just like the publicans? And if you salute your brethren only, What do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? So how is this all summarized? It's summarized with this. We are striving as Christians for holiness. Now, Verse 48 is a paradoxical verse. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is what? This is the idea of holiness, completion and holiness. Now, I think Jesus is accomplishing two things with this statement, as I would interpret it. One, he's giving us a standard that we can never attain to. He's demonstrating for us, hey, if you really want to be in the kingdom, you've got to be perfect. like, our, And we should look at this and be like, I can never do this. I mean, honestly, folks, how many of you could look back at what we just talked about today Is there anybody in here that didn't feel convicted about something? I mean, don't raise your hand, please. (laughs) But, like, is there anybody that could be like, nope, I'm good on all those. I'm doing them all. I'm perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Got it, Jesus. I did it. Did it. No, I think one thing Jesus is, the first thing Jesus is accomplishing is he's calling us to an impossible standard that we realize how desperately we need the gospel. I can't be that Jesus, you have to make me that. But I think the second thing he's doing is giving us a standard, while we will never attain to it, he's given us a standard to aspire to. We'll never attain it until the day he glorifies us in heaven. But until then, because we are the children of God, because we are saved by his grace, because we have received his righteousness. That is what we attain to. Why? Because of this. You never display the power of the gospel more than when you live out the transformation of Jesus. When you and I strive for this holiness, we are not displaying to the world how impressive we are. We are displaying to the world that the power of Jesus has changed us, that the gospel changes us. Peter, the apostle, put it really well by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'll leave you with these verses, and I want you to think about them as I finish here. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25, For even here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Verse 22, Jesus did no sin, Neither was guile find it found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Verse 24, this is why this is all a gospel issue. Verse 24, who his own self, Jesus himself, bear our sins In his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto what? Do you understand that verse? This is the gospel. Jesus took our sin on the cross so that then he could give us righteousness. By his stripes you were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You see, we are lost sheep. We come into this world sinners. We come into this world as lost sheep going every way we please. Then the righteousness of God is shown to us and we still continue as lost sheep going whatever way. But Jesus said, I will pay for the sins of those lost sheep. I will pay the penalty that they deserve. And if they will believe in me, I will give them my righteousness and I will make them my holy people. Has there been a time in your life where you realized you were lost, where you received the forgiveness of Christ? That standard, I cannot attain, I cannot attain to it, but I believe that Jesus did. And his death will pay for my sin. That's the starting point. When I believe the gospel, when I trust Christ as my Savior, and then I say, now Jesus, help me now to live like you. Help me to live out your power in my life. So I always finish with those two questions. One, have you come to that moment of salvation where you've received Christ as your Savior? Have you admitted to God you cannot be good enough you need his forgiveness. If that's never happened, you need to do that today. Don't wait another moment until you receive Christ as your Savior. But the second application is for those who would say, yes, I have received Jesus. Well, are you living out the Christ-like life? Which of these things? Maybe there's issues in your marriage, or maybe you have trouble with honesty, and maybe you just get angry with people, and one of these things, maybe there's another area that I didn't even speak about, but you realize that you're not living Christ-like a Christ-like life. Life, make that right today. Start afresh and anew today. Let's come to our invitation time. If you'd please bow your heads and close your eyes. This is an important time, so please, let's not, if possible, no moving around or distractions, but fully focused. Fully focused on how God is speaking to our hearts personally. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Has there been a time in your life where you admitted you couldn't be good enough and you received his forgiveness? If you're unsure, I'd invite you to do it right now. You can make sure right now by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. You say, how do I do that? Well, you can pray something like this. Right now, pray something like this. Say, Dear God, I do admit that I am a sinner. I've fallen far short of your standard. But I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And I ask you to save me. Please save me from my sins. If you will do that right now, the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you ask Jesus to save you? And now for those of us that have already done that, right now, what area? How many of you would say this morning, God convicted you about a specific area in your life? Thank you. Amen. You'd say, God convicted me about this specific area where I've not been living the life a Christian is called to live. Well, right now is the opportunity the opportunity to confess that and to start new with the Lord. Say, Lord, I'll use your power. So in this next few quiet moments as the instruments play, would you just take some time and pray, recommit that area of your life to the Lord. Let's spend some
1: time in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the message we heard today. We thank you for speaking to us, Lord, in your Holy Spirit. We pray that Lord, if someone in here doesn't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day they would put their faith in you. For the rest of us, Lord, who you have spoken to, we pray that, Lord, we would make a decision today that we would follow your leading. If you've convicted us of sin, we pray that we would get it right, that we'd seek your forgiveness. Lord, if you've convicted us to keep keep on with holy living, we pray that we would, stand on that conviction in jesus name amen we are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today if you've been blessed by the message or if you have placed your faith in jesus today we want to hear from you maybe you saw questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with jesus please let us know and we would love to answer those questions from the bible we would also be happy to provide you with the bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.